Today we're um, finishing up Romans. Let's thank God. Dear Lord God, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the minds you have given us. We're grateful for thinking that is um, capable of both understanding word from you, communicating it to others, processing it in our lives. We'd ask that we would be diligent. In your son's name, amen. We're in chapter 16 of the book of Romans. It's the last chapter. It is the last chapter that, as you'll be able to tell very quickly, it's like the begats in Leviticus or, or Numbers or Genesis, the passages you skim over quickly because you know you will not be benefited by any of it. So you ignore it. But we're not going to do that because we've covered every other part of Romans. We're going to take a look at this, and there's actually some spiritual benefit in it. But admittedly, the first part is a bunch of St. Paul going, say hi to so-and-so. What's interesting about that, at least on the surface, Paul has not been to Rome. Paul is in Corinth, probably at the end of his third missionary journey. Uh, he's been there before. Uh, he's writing to a church from Corinth in Rome that he's, he's trying to lay out some very, very basic things that we talked about in the last couple of chapters about how um, he was bringing this by way of reminder to them. These are basic things of the faith in the book of Romans. Even today we know that Romans is sort of the kind of the touchstone for an awful lot of what we believe as Christians. Paul argues Christianity very aggressively. But what's interesting is that when you start with the book and you say, oh, he hasn't been here before, he doesn't know these people, you find out that in this congregation of saints, in this body of believers in Rome, a bunch of old friends, maybe even family members, People he knows and has worked with in the gospel, older Christians than he is. And another interesting thing, so you're getting an audience that some people are not just nodding for the first time to what he is saying, but these are people that are hearing from an old friend in St. Paul, and they'll be there to clarify or to... extend the benefit of what St. Paul says by their knowledge of him. The other interesting thing is he's not writing to a singular church. It really is a situation like we have in this town where you have a number of different churches. We call them different churches. The word church just means assembly or, or, or like from the word ecclesia, assembly. And uh, back in the early church they didn't have even things like this, church buildings. They'd have halls they could rent, or a lot of them, as you'll see here in this section, met in homes. And there's a suggestion there's at least three home fellowships, home churches that are going on in this section, which is the church in Rome. So in one case, the book would be read, the letter would be read in one church. Some of these people would be in that church. They'd get greeted. 
and then it would be passed on to the next church, and they would read it in their church, and they would, various other people there. Let's take a look at it. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. A passage with much argument available in it. Phoebe, it's a woman, uses the term deaconess. It is the Greek word diakonos. It is, uh, and, the, and the theologically minded people argue over whether or not it's the official office of deacon. We have one deacon in this church of recent appointment, Mark Connect. He's not a girl. He's got to be one or the other, so he's a guy. What would you say? I don't know why there's really an argument, frankly. Only growing up as a, in more baptistic circles where deacons were sort of the heads of the church rather than the servants of the church. Because if it's not the role of deacon here for Phoebe as an office, it's used as the actual word means, which is servant. She's a servant of the church, which frankly is what a deacon is. We have a woman here, and it's, another interesting thing as I read through this, there are, I think, three women mentioned, definitely, maybe four. Yeah, four women mentioned. All, all of them, um, well, actually, more than four. The ones that are definitely by, um, I'm thinking of Mary, Trophena, and Trophosa, and Phoebe, all of them have to do with work. And, 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 and you women know that when, when the church needs something done in service to the church, it's generally the women who step forward to do it. It's like in your own home, right? You, when somebody has to clean up the baby, mom. If someone spills their malt in the back seat of the van, it's mom that generally gets to go back there. Women are conscientious servants of the church. Conscientious servants of the church. And Paul is not behindhand about recognizing that. The number of, just the sheer number of personal relationships he has with these women is pronounced. He has gotten to know these people. To where out of however many hundreds or thousands of Christians in Rome at the time... He remembers to single out these women to greet. He is sending a woman there, Sencria. I think if we had a PowerPoint presentation, we could be, you know, doing something up here with a map of, you remember, okay, some of you remember, um, the Peloponnese sticks down below Greece. Here's Greece. There's the Peloponnese. And there's a little isthmus between the two. Athens is up on the, in Attica and and then it goes, yeah, forget it. Well, a few miles away, across the isthmus from Corinth, where Paul is probably writing from, is Sencria, where Phoebe is from. She's from the church. It's the other port city on the other side of the isthmus of Corinth. Okay? You, go, you come in the Gulf of Corinth on one side, drop your loads. It gets hiked across the isthmus to Sencria. It's like Panama. Okay? Picture Panama. No canal. Just uh, two port cities. 
That's where she's from. And he's sending her along with this admonition that they help her out, that they render whatever she is doing, that they grant her help because she has been such a help. She has been such a help to many and of myself as well. I think sometimes because we're, we're rough and ready Americans, you know, the Western Americans, you know, we're, you know, cowboys and frontiersmen and the like, and messages that stress patriarchy. I'm, I'm a fan of patriarchy. I'm, you know, I'm a fan of tyranny. But sometimes there's this icky patriarchy that goes on that somehow thinks that, that there ought not be this benefit in women in the church. Perhaps some of you viscerally are feeling right now, Evan is sliding towards feminism. Well, you know better than that. Was, the key is, 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 was Paul sliding towards feminism? Or was Paul just picking up those who had worked for the church? Now, he's very clear. Now, Paul, for all of this, you go to Timothy, you go to other places, he's very clear about what the role of women is, both in the family and in the church. But don't start to put the Pauline stamp of approval on every restrictive mentality you may have, thinking that you're, just, you're being that much more masculine for having done so. I don't think it's necessary to have women deacons. I think it is necessary in a church that the saints in the church be serving each other. I think it is necessary that if you're a woman who's got a real gift of service, that you be serving the church according to the level of that gift. Now, we might not ever know whether or not that the, the, that the, whether St. Paul ever believed that a woman should hold the office of deacon. I would have a conniption if someone did. But that's, you know, we don't have a policy in this church about it. But our hearts are supposed to be in the right place both in the service and the reception of the serving. Because just, take it the other way. Take it, say, there are no women deacons. In the office sense. There are women servants. And those women servants are people to whom you owe help. Receiver in the Lord as befits the saints, and helper in whatever she may require from you. I don't care how you slice it, you're supposed to recognize as befitting the saints of God her service to the church by helping it, whatever she may need. If you're, you know, got your jockey shorts in a bunch about giving a woman the title of deacon, fine. We'll call her Deaconette or something. Do we do you say, Evan, are we planning to have any? Look at your heart. Don't look at some ecclesiastical power struggle. So many people over the centuries have fought over titles. The whole Eastern and Western church, what did it split over? The homoousius or the, the procession of the, of the Godhead, something like that? The filioque, the, the procession of, of the Holy Spirit from Christ and the Father, or just from the Father, or what was it? You know, 
Christians can get into uh, real difficult moments with each other over inconsequential. Stop and look at yourself and say, am I, as befitting a saint, recognizing those women that serve the church as Paul recognized them, and been ready to labor and give and help as they may require? Or am I the kind of person that wants to think of himself as some young cotton mather? You know, there's somebody who wants to be uh, the father Abraham wandering amongst the, uh, the oaks of Mamre with women kept in their proper place. Women are servants of the church and are recognized by the apostle. And if your attitude befits that of a saint, you'll respond this way. Ignore the ecclesiastical structure. Look at your heart. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Now you remember Priscilla and Aquila. Prisca is just a shortening of her name. Husband and wife team, they were tent makers like St. Paul. Uh, Back in Acts 18, they had had a ministry with him and worked with him, and they are the ones that uh, convinced Apollos of the true things of Christianity when he was uninformed. So they're, they're kind of a power duo. That's another neat benefit in a church. You have women. Now obviously, Phoebe doesn't seem to be married. She's being sent across the Mediterranean to Rome uh, with work to do all by her lonesome and needs help. If she had a and her husband would be there to help her if she was. She may be a widow. She may be uh, someone who is just devoted to the work of the church. But you also have married couples. And this, this married couple is a... You don't really ever mention them by themselves. It's always Priscilla and Aquila. It's always the two of them. So as those of you who are married, or will eventually be married... Understand the benefit of ministering as a husband and wife. Well, one of the very big benefits to ministering as a husband and wife is that you get to combine the, 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 uh, the labor of the gospel with time with your spouse versus pastors who go off and pastor to their church or their ministry all the time and their wife tries to keep home and hearth side together and she never sees her husband. Minister together. Bring people in, especially if you have a hospitality ministry that involves directly. We at the big house uh, did it 22 years ago because Leslie's gifts were in hospitality. And we wanted to have you doing something that would feature what we did together. And we've, uh, I don't know, 250 people have lived with us for the past 22 years some of you here today. Greet also the church in their house. That's that's the first church that we see uh, mentioned in Rome. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert in Asia for Christ. Asia is in um, Turkey, that region of Ephesus, um, the province of Asia. This is the guy who first came to Christ many years before, Second missionary journey. And now he's in Rome, and Paul wants to say hi to him. Greet Mary. There's another woman who has worked hard among you. 
Greet Mary, who has worked hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junius. And this is an arguable passage because some of the translations say Andronicus and Junia, which would be a woman. Some say Junius, some say Junia. The reason it is difficult for people is because it says, My kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they are men of note among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Some people who are of the feminist variety want to switch it to Junia and then insist that Junia was an apostle. Okay? Because they, it doesn't say men of note. It says who are of note among the apostles. And so they're, they're, they're pressing the point on a number of different questionable areas. One, whether it's Junia or Junius. And two, uh, whether or not they're saying, are they noted among the apostles? Are they apostles of note? And even if they, the word apostles is applied to them in other places in the New Testament, it is applied to non apostolic authority people. Anybody who is sent out is an apostle. If we had a missionary picked one of you and sent you to Wisconsin or something, try to establish a mission there, uh, that would be an apostle of this church to Wisconsin. They were in Christ before me. These are probably people that Paul met in Jerusalem who were in the church that Stephen, you know, that initial church in Jerusalem that Paul persecuted, when Paul says they were in Christ before him, um, that would put them in that whole set of, of uh, early believers. They were in Christ before me. Greet Amphilatus, oh, Ampiliatus, whatever it is. My beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Some people think there was a famous, famous slave named Narcissus at this time in Rome uh, who was uh, an aide to Claudius and was forced to commit suicide right before this letter was written. And the, the household of Narcissus would have deferred to the, would have then gone into the emperor's household. And so some people think that this is the Narcissus, that the, the, the household of Narcissus, not Narcissus himself. And they're, they're, they're connecting the two, um, the two worlds there. It's a possibility, but other people could be named Narcissus as well. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenea and Trophosa. Probably sisters, you know, like Graham and Gunn. They're not sisters, but they sound, you know, names are... Um, I knew two little boys, Sticky and Dicky. Two little boys, twins, Sticky and Dicky. I don't know their last names. What, is, what, is, what are their names? Tryphenea and Trophosa. What's interesting about these girls is not only, once again, are they workers, but Paul may be making a joke because, they're, because their names, both of their names stem from a word that has to do with a life of ease. Okay, Both of their names, as sisters, have to do with a life of ease. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophonea and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. 
Greet Rufus, eminent in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Paul has a greater degree of relationship here with Rufus um, that people have wondered whether or not Rufus is his brother or whether just that there was a relationship between St. Paul and his family that you know how a, uh, an older woman can become kind of a mother figure to you as you're growing in the Lord. Well, Rufus, most people think that this Rufus, because he's mentioned as imminent in the Lord, um, do you remember when Jesus was going to the cross and his uh, stumbled and fell and they grabbed that guy, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross for him? Remember him? Vague, just nod. You can read it later, later if you were lying to me. Okay, Simon of Cyrene. It mentions that his son's names, in that passage, it mentions his son's, son's names as, he says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. As if that was going to be like meaningful to the Christian. Oh, we know him. Okay, this is the father that is the father of these guys we know. So this Rufus could be the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross for Christ, and hence perhaps eminent in the Lord. In other words, a certain degree of standing, having been in the world or in the situation when Christ was ministering. Greedas and Critus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren who are with them. That's the mention probably of another church. Greet Philologus, Juliet, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Once again, there seems to be a ga- different gatherings, different assemblies of the church. We assemble not because the modern church is so wrong-headed about it. They assemble only after they have, distinctly, only after they've had a fight with somebody else. And they want to raise a flag of their distinction. Rather than saying, we're gathered together because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be with others who do. Now, obviously, we probably have differences of opinion with other Christians in other churches. But I hope that's not the reason we're here. And we'd like to credit them and these other churches here in town with gathering together because they love the Lord Christ. And so that when I think of them, when I think of them, I think of them as other people that if it was only convenient to do so, we'd spend more time fellowshipping with them as well. It's not always convenient to pack a stadium. It's much more convenient to meet in a hall like this or in a home or some other situation. We get enough fellowship. We get enough gain. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, young single guys, this is not your verse. You're not your life verse. And um, what does it say in Titus? Urge the younger men to control themselves. Okay, you may, you may only greet others with a holy kiss, if I only see you kissing your Christian brother. And the... Well, stay away from our wives, okay? <laughs> However you want to slice it. So don't do it. The hearty hand class will be fine. They would, they're like the French back in these days. <laughs> I'd hate to convey, convey that the early church was like the French. That's just like... Oh, we despise the French. 
It's one, our one doctrinal point as a church. They are cheese-eating surrender monkeys, and that's... I'm sorry. No view on the end times, but we're sure about the French. In our society, the hearty hand clasp is sufficient. It's the sign of welcome. It's, the, it's, it's, it's slapping one another on the back. It's that, it's that sense of, of coming together and, and meeting with someone. Society is a mystery, and the society of Christians is a greater mystery, and we find ourselves enjoying it in a great degree. We're not shaking hands because we're polite. We're not going kiss-kiss because we, we, just because it's, the, it's the, 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 the polite thing to do. It's the holy thing to do, a holy kiss. Something that represents, when you extend your hand, this is extend the right hand to fellowship, when you extend your hand, you are offering your communion as a Christian. I'll meet a businessman in my work day or something, and I'll shake his hand, or I'll shake, you know, all sorts of people. It's the polite thing to do. But there's a difference when you extend your hand to a brother in Christ, sister in Christ. You're extending a holy hand. Something that, that in your mind is set apart, and you're hoping that it's going to be met by somebody else's hand who is set apart. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, the next section, we just got through the say hi to everybody section. He actually has one last thing he wants to tell them, one thing he wants to warn them. I appeal to you, brethren, verse 17, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties. Well, that seems almost, it's not out of the blue. What's he been saying? Hey, everybody in all these different groups in Rome who are probably getting along just fine, other than that Jew-Gentile problem we've been talking about for 16 chapters, we're, um, we're seeing this greeting, this, this, this remembrance of fellow Christians and fellow workers in the gospel who are scattered in a number of different churches that Paul knows of. You ever notice that the fellowship we have? Now, we're just inside one church here, and we, we know that... There's, there are struggles between Christians, between different churches. But the fellowship we have in Christ here, we, we really value it. Oh, and you know very well that no church is safe from dissension. And the simplest thing to do, the general thing that you have to do, or what churches do, is from the top down, that'd be me, we write out a sheet of things that you must hold to, things that you must consider to be true, and you'll sign it, you and your children's children. In other words, the shortest distance between two points is law. We try to create some sort of law, some oath, I believe this and I believe no other. Well, I know that I couldn't get very many of you to sign it. So how are we going to do it? We're not gathered together because we agree about all these secondary truths. We want the gathering of the, of the believers to be because of your desire to be here. Our view of the church is not that Christ died for the church and you are a collateral effect of it. Christ died for you and the church is a collateral effect of you. So the instruction has to be to you about dissension. I appeal to you, brethren, take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties. In opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught, avoid them. Avoid those people. Now, what do you have to be? Take note. Well, anytime anybody 
raises a question. Somebody may have an immediate conniption. He's causing dissensions and difficulties. Look at the qualifications in this moment. You're taking note of someone who is making a dissension in opposition to something. You have got to be confident that what you know in Christ, your faith, what you've asserted about life and salvation, is the true doctrine, is that which is important. Then you have the power to take note of whether this person is not a prophet of God or they're just a person who's causing trouble. There's a guy roaming the streets of Moscow now named Doug Stambler, who is this in a, in a very extreme way. He hasn't shown up at our church yet. He has shown up at any number of other ones. I think Trinity enjoyed his company for a while, um, as did the Nazarene Church, as I think Christ Church did for a while as well. Let's just say he badmouths every Christian he knows to every other Christian he meets. Just. I got a phone call from a disrupted Christian two days ago that I didn't know this Christian who this guy had been talking to. Just. It was pretty easy to respond to, but this is the guy that on the Vision 2020 web chat room blog or whatever they're called uh, for the local politics and so forth, this guy came on there, got onto the computers at the university or something and, and said, Wilsons are bad for Moscow. Speaking of my father, he says, there's only one good Wilson, that's Evan Wilson. I don't know this guy, okay? <laughs> I want you to know, I don't know this guy. So... This guy's trouble. Doug Stambler, watch out for him. He's a, he's a schmarmy sort of guy. He needs help, both mentally, spiritually, and all sorts of other ways. But take note of him. Why did I tell you? Oh, I'm not, I'm not gossiping. It says to take note. This guy is in opposition. He is causing trouble. I had a phone call from another pastor telling me about what he was saying about them to the Nazarenes and what the Nazarenes, you know, all sorts of other things. Avoid them. Simple. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Religion is a great place to get things done. It's a great place to hit on girls. It's a great place to uh, uh, express your sense of... Uh, I, I look at the appetites as these. There are, the things in the world are plain. All that is in the world is plain. Out of 1 John... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay? Those are, in broad strokes, the appetites. The things we want to get done. The things that can leverage us into motion. We see a pretty girl, we want to marry her. Because there's a lust of the flesh, or the desire of the flesh. We see a pretty painting, we want to own it, we want to hang it up. We want to, we want to have our, our china, ladies, our china match, and no cracks in it. We want to be able to set a nice table. We want to be able to have matching candlesticks. We want beauty, another point of leverage. And then there's the whole thing about competition and ambition, the pride of life, getting things done. It's a guy thing. These are the appetites. God made them. But the problem is in the church there are men going around who the reason they're creating dissension and difficulty is because, not just because they like dissension and difficulty, because it benefits them. The church is like a, um, 
a fish pond stocked with big trout. Both money, weak women who can be led astray. Years ago, there was a church out in Palouse that everybody talked about. I think I mentioned it before. Everybody talked, what a great church. The pastor's just great. Turns out he was sleeping with 18 of the women in the church, married women. He had to leave town in the middle of the night when they found out because the husbands were going to kill him. He was using to serve his own appetites. Well, some of you say, well, that, that doesn't mean everybody is that kind of you know, immoral. Well, if it isn't that, sometimes it's just beauty, the lust of the eyes, having the cathedral, having the stained glass. I'd love stained glass, but boy, those temptations are pretty strong. The desire to preach in such a way that people will give more money, not because you're hungry for money, but because you're hungry for beauty, because you want a better organ or you want a better choir, because you're hungry for things like that, serving your appetite. And then there's just the people who like to have a big crowd. Frankly, I'm a little unnerved by the number of people here. Not because I'm shy, but because it's been many years of reaching to a not as many. You say, this isn't very big, Evan. Well, it's big from this vantage point, okay? <laughs> when you have done for X number of you know, decades um, three rows and that spread out. <laughs> and so what if you start inviting people, more and more people? The temptation that the pastor is then under is that his appetite is served. It's not wrong to have a lot of people there, but it's a temptation. The pride of life. That the measure of my sense of glory is the number of people in the pews. And false teachers come from this. Men that decide to serve appetites by their teaching rather than serve Christ. Now, once when the teacher is in that mode, what does he do? He says, by fair and flattering words. In other words, they speak to the appetites. Right? Fair and flattering words. So the things that you have, you've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so if I came up with a compelling argument why there should be a huge statue of St. Michael the Archangel right here, glorious wings spread, running a spear through the, de- the devil. That's, that's a great sculpture. I, I don't know if you've seen that. I can get one. I know where to get it. It's not that big, though. It's only about yay. Not really imposing. But it's a great sculpture. St. Michael running a spear through the, the dragon. And I say I came up with this great description, fair and flattering words, that my desire for the beauty, and as an artist, I like beauty, but that's as an artist, not as a Christian. It'd be nice to have. I don't have any objection to having a statue in the church. Not maybe right in front, but off to the side. Or stained glass or padded pews or whatever else that make good organs. I don't have any objection. But we need to always keep in mind that these are points of leverage that false teachers use. That your desire to have something justified by the man in the pulpit, because I've got a pulpit here. And I've got an amplified voice. And I prepared my notes and I could make it seem like, well, well, how's the, where's the defense line? The last thing is, deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. The simple-minded here with their appetites. You have someone who lives by his appetites as a teacher. 
He preaches to the appetite, and he's heard with the appetite. Because the simple-minded don't have any replacement leverage to stop that thought from coming into your head. Someone who preaches wine and strong drink, he shall be a preacher for this people. You prophesy wine and strong drink, you'll be a prophet for this people. Why? Because people don't have anything to replace their urge for wine and strong drink. And so a pastor who is stressing that, or stressing uh, like cults do, you know, free love or, or, or uh, use of illegal substances or, or disobeying the IRS. That's a good one. I'll probably get a real big church doing that. Yeah, it's not right that we should be paying money to Caesar, you know, and everybody. Because we like to believe, like to hear that. You're simple-minded. And when you're simple-minded, that means you do not have the rigor of thought to check what the pastor is saying and stop it. Keep yourself from believing it by having something that replaces the leverage of your own appetites. Now, I am not a monastic individual. I don't believe that the appetites are wrong. I believe, just like John the Apostle said, you do not love these things, and you do not find yourself making Christian choices motivated by your appetites. You make Christian choices motivated by the guidance of God. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I would have you wise to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now that's a... You've got to have your feet on the ground, listening to your pastor Sunday to Sunday, be it this pastor or any other pastor you go listen to, Books you read, the people you take in and give authority to, what is their life like? Are they, are they serving appetite? Are they preaching to my appetites? Are my appetites too big a part of my thinking process? I'm not preaching to your emotions here. Because I oh, you have them, they're good, they're fine. But they're, your, your emotions are one of your appetites. You go play and paddle around in your emotions, and well and good, have a good time, but that's not how you should be growing in Christ. I am preaching Christ to your head because it can have meaning that you can apply at that point. Oh, we could manipulate you with emotion. We could play to all of your appetites. It doesn't make the appetites bad. It just means that they can replace how God really approaches you. If that is what's the case, if you are wise to what is good and guileless to the evil, then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That kind of sounds like the passage I quote over on the left-hand side out of Corinthians about false teachers uh, being servants of Satan, disguising themselves as angels of light. Apostles of Christ, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. False teachers, beware of them. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. This is it. Greet the people there in Rome, and now the people that are with me are going to greet you. So do Lucius and Sosipater, my kinsmen. That is probably Sopater of uh, Corinthians. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. You can just imagine St. Paul going, okay, 
Tertius, you can sh- you know, shove one in there. Your own inspired Word of God verse. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Aratus, the city treasurer, uh, and our brother Quartus greets you. We actually have a, a pavement inscribed with this guy's name, Aratus, uh, from Corinth at this time. Okay, he's the city treasurer. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which is kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. You ever read through a benediction? Your benedictions are wonderful, right? The one in Jude is the best. But look at this benediction. Break it down. What's he saying? Subtract all the middle clauses. He is basically saying in the benediction, now to him be glory. Okay, that's it. Now to him be glory. That's what is the, 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 the bracketing structure, the integrity of the benediction. Now to God be glory. But in this case, he's saying something like in Jude, he says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his right hand with great rejoicing to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, etc. They, 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 they're, they're, they're packed with meaning and packed with blessing. This one says something else. It says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, he is saying, I want you to think in this benediction of the strength that the glory of God and uh, is able to bring you, and it's going to be in accordance, and this is the learning point, the strength that he is able to bring you is going to be in accordance, in keeping with, in keeping with three things. Look, I bolded them. There's according, 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 right? According to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which is kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed through the prophetic writings, is made known to all nations, and according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Take some time to look at those. Because that is, in, in his benediction, is calling out to the glory of God, that God be glorified. He, he is carrying on that, that strong, you know, uh, you might say, praise, praising sentiment. One of the things that is carried to us by our presence in Christ, and that is the ability to be strengthened. We come to church to be strengthened, to be edified, to be built up. That which is from God is going to be in accordance with these three things. It's going to be in keeping with the gospel you have heard. It doesn't change as you get deeper into Christianity. You don't find the simple things believed at the beginning, oh, have to be rejected and other things get picked up. It's going to be in keeping with the Old Testament and the prophets that have, have uh, were written down for us, made known and the mystery of it disclosed to us later on, and it's going to be in accordance with the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's thank God. Dear Lord God, we're grateful. You have blessed us in the teaching of your apostle. St. Paul, through his ministry to the church at Rome, to his friends and strangers there that he's going to visit a little bit later in life, Lord, we'd ask that you would help us recall these things, 
look over these things again and again through our life and rejoice with a sense of great gladness at the, at the mercies offered us, the faith that has changed us. We'd ask that we would honor your gospel and honor your kingdom in your son's name. Amen.